Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Female Founders Network, a podcast brought to you by invoice to go I'm your host, Nat, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sylvie. Hey, everyone. We record our show in the Forbes Street studio in downtown Sydney, Australia, but we bring guests from all over the world. So you'll hear people from the U.S., the United Kingdom, Europe, the Asia Pacific, anywhere that we find women who lead and inspire others. This is a great podcast for women who are navigating business ownership, leadership, or just life. Each episode should connect you with someone else's story, but also leave you with practical tips and advice that you can use in your own life and in your own business. Happy Halloween to our U.S. listeners. Halloween dress-up and pumpkin spice are two of the things I miss most about living in America. Today, however, we're talking about a different kind of spirits. Yes, Julie Resendez is a wine connoisseur who turned her passion into a business. She shares her amazing journey to entrepreneurship, how she moved to Amsterdam and broke through the barrier of a boys' club industry with her sister companies, Van Bell Wine and Van Bell Academy. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Julie. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good morning. Good. Good morning to you. (laughs) (laughs) So we are calling Julie all the way across the world. Um, Julie, where are you located in the Netherlands? I'm located in Amsterdam. You are in in Amsterdam. Okay. But obviously you're not originally from Amsterdam. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about your uh, life so far and how you ended up in Amsterdam? Yeah. Um, originally, I was born in Seattle. Mm-hmm. I uh, grew up there for, uh, I'm going to out myself as far as age. I lived there for 30 years, and I basically went to school and lived in, grew up in Ballard, which is a small neighborhood in um, Seattle, but it's very, very tight. It's like the smallest community you could possibly think of, but it's great. Now it's all... Um, extremely rich people who live there but now it's funny because my parents and my parent people that I grew up with they're all sort of the leftovers and it's a really beautiful community I love going home and um it's right by the sea so you can you can run down through the hills um on the cliff and go down to the water into the the Puget Sound beautiful and then yeah it's great we used to sneak out there and go um go have beers on the beach when we were kids but um (laughs) illegal drinking and then um (laughs) and then uh and when I grew up my grandparents had a vineyard in eastern Washington okay and so my my grandmother was still alive at the time but my grandfather had passed away when I was about four years old Mm. and we used to my brother and I I have three three brothers but at the time my youngest brothers weren't born yet. There's a 10 and 11 year difference between the two, uh, between us. Wow. And my brother David and I were closer in age. And my parents, I think it was to get a break from us. <laughs> <They'd>, <laughs> they were like sick of us. You kids are going to with your grandmother. And uh, we would go spend the summers of our youth in eastern Washington and frolic in the vineyards. And Dude, my parents shipped me off to my grandparents as well. They shipped me off oh, every summer. Did? Where did they go? Oh, did... yeah. My grandparents lived in uh, West Palm Beach, and I spent a lot of time in West Palm Beach. <laughs> oh, you're from – you're American. That's I, all. I should guess I should have understood from the, from the accent. <laughs> yeah. I grew up in Ohio. Yeah, they used to ship me down there, <laughs> and they had three kids. But did you like it? I loved it. I felt very special. You know, because at your grandparents' house, you're, you're kind of worshipped. Like your parents, they're trying yeah. to teach you and discipline you, but your grandparents, you can do no wrong. 
<laughs> I think, yeah, I totally agree. And I think that's why I think I have this sort of supernatural confidence because my grandmother was an amazing woman. She was sort of like the, um, not even just the, the matriarch of the family, but she uh-huh. was this beautiful soul who was completely generous and all these people would come and visit her and, you know, cause she lived far out in the country cause that's where the vineyards are. Mm. And, um, and she had all these people would come visit her and she'd be managing this vineyard. And we had this, uh, neighbor people who called the Vissers who helped her, um, learn about how to viticult, uh, grow vines and they really helped her as well. And, so everybody, the whole family, they, they, she took care of the vines herself by doing, you know, pruning. And she practiced a, a sort of farming, mm. which is similar to what is close to be called biodynamics at this particular point. Mm. But I don't think she even knew what that was. I think she kind of just said this works by using natural methods. I don't have chemicals. I don't have access to chemicals. So this is what we have to do. Mm. Right. So we had, we had to take care of all of that. And that was great. And then, uh, she used to like my brother and I used to roll around in the mud, and pretend that we were kit- pigs, and then she would take a hose and hose us off and like say, "We have some more kids." And yeah, we had fun. We had fun. Like, look, kids, this but, is what we did before iPads. Yeah, exactly. We there was not a speck dirt. of dirt that was not on us. That's awesome. Yeah, that's they great. great. So your formative yeah. years, you kind of grew up in part on this vineyard, basically. Yes. Yeah. I grew up on the vineyard, and then, um, as most young adults do, they rebel. Mm-hmm. And um, when my grandmother was getting ready to sell the vineyard, I had no, n- neither I or my relatives had any interest. Maybe they did, but I think I was, I was around twenty five. I think at the time, mm. if I remember correctly. So I'm getting older. <laughs> the ages are like back when I was that age. Um, <laughs> we didn't want to take over the vineyard site. And I think it was kind of sad for my grandmother because she would love to have had it passed along to somebody. Yeah. But she, she would, there, nobody really wanted to. So she sold it and then she came and lived with, with us. Yeah. And we, we spent, um, because she was getting older, she died when she was 102. Oh my goodness. Almost 102. Is it because she yeah. drank so much wine? <laughs> <laughs> no, the woman, like, I don't know. She ate butter and like put lots of salt on her food and ah. everything they tell you not to do she did maybe it was all the but she was very active so yeah okay yeah that could be it that's amazing so, doing something you love your whole life too yeah she yeah. did love it they they um were on the circuit in the south um picking like different fruits and whatnot and then my uncle had a access to a gi bill and they bought a vineyard in eastern washington in the in the mid uh to in the late 50s and they started growing grapes and they wow. were one of the first ones out there in red mountain area so that's where wow. we wow so she came to america as a migrant worker and then ended up buying a vineyard well i uh, she's she was uh, she wasn't really a migrant worker she, uh, in, in regard to, as coming to america for them oh, but okay. she basically she because of economics that's what she ended up doing and then they got okay. enough money and saved enough money to buy a vineyard and then they um and then they started doing that and that that brought them out how inspiring yeah. is that that's beautiful yeah so she's great you've kind of had this like entrepreneurial streak in the family then I guess yeah yes <laughs> yes definitely much 
yeah. hardcore, work hard. The whole adage of the whole family was work hard at anything that you like to do and you'll become successful. There was really no sort of um, belief of, you know, don't try. It was not really a, a, a vein of laziness. There was We didn't have that luxury. Yeah. You either worked or you went hungry. So yeah. we, had to, we had to work hard. So it was good. Wow. So, so what happened then? How did you kind of come to Amsterdam and start your business? Well, then when I was 30, um, I moved to um, New York City. And I um, ended up going to, living in New York for 15 years. And um, I worked at a restaurant from the the Bromberg Brothers called Blue Ribbon. And I worked there and started getting into, I had worked in restaurants before. And then got interested in the gourmet scene and started to basically go to restaurants and see all these people who were the sommeliers there, mostly mm-hmm. men, actually all men at the time. Um, and I started becoming really interested in what they were doing. And then I worked, I, I left my job at Blue, Blue Ribbon and went to work for Boulet, um, David Boulet. And there was a sommelier there and I would follow him around and ask him all sorts of questions and I went to other restaurants, like um, worked for Danielle Ballou and also um, Rocco Disparito, who now is a television star. But at the time, he um, was a really famous chef and was actually one of the darlings of the culinary world. And he was really fantastic. And he had a great team there. And one of the sommeliers there was named Fred Price and just a really great guy, super um, encouraging and amazing and he was like, Jules, you can only learn so much by, by tasting. You need to start studying, getting yourself in a book. Mm. And at the time, there really wasn't any, that many courses. There was, I think WSET had sort of it, it had been kind of going on. And then they had uh, the ASA, which is the American Samoa Association. And so I went to WSET and started studying and met a lot of people and then got my first appointment and worked in as a sommelier for about four years for um, Aquavie. And then I decided that I just, and then clay. And then I decided that it was too, um, I wanted to have like a little bit more life work balance because working, getting off at like one or two o'clock in the morning and yeah, up, Hospitality know, can be for, hard like that. Yeah, it was really hard. Yeah. It was too much. So I went to the distribution side and went to try to learn about distributing and importing mm-hmm. and worked there and then worked as a supplier so I went. I've worked every facet from growing to I can see that selling <laughs> on the floor to distribution and and then um, now education. Damn so girl, to, you've really done it I all. Know. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to see that. I know the wine industry in and out for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. And then I moved to Amsterdam in 2015 because my uh, my girlfriend, like my friend, we call my you know my friend, she lived here, and I would come visit every year. And I loved it. I love the city. It's beautiful. Yeah. I wanted to sort of retire and um, <laughs> uh, work at a different pace than New York City. Yeah. And I had friends here and they spoke English. And I said, I kind of get these ideas of, I should do this. And then I do it. And That's it's great. just like the door swings open. And <laughs> it's maybe kismet, who knows. But so I applied for a visa and I got it super fast. The Dutch offer visas for entrepreneurs to come to Netherlands to set up a business. You have to have a certain amount of money in the bank. 
At the time, it was 3,500. I think it might be 4,200 now. And you have to be able to show um, a business plan and also a um, sort of working revenue that you go through, you're going to go through. And awesome. I got it. And so I've been working. Um, initially, I was doing wine marketing, helping wineries gain sales and distribution into the United States by helping align them with different importers and create sales plans. Mm -hmm. And I worked for that and that was quite good. And also helping with media packaging. So any of the people who wanted to, there's different critics. And if you wanted to get in front of the critics, I would create a media package like a, you know, press kit and then help put put them in front of the um, critic and by telling them the schedules and how to how to apply for this and all, doing all the logistics of it, basically. Cool. And so, that worked until I decided I wanted to start a school. So and that you, was basically the precip of starting um, Van Bill Academy, wow. which I love. So did you basically start the business to be able to move to Amsterdam? Yeah. <laughs> and then it kind of... <laughs> That's so awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's basically it. Yeah, I was... Um, I didn't, I mean, to move to Amsterdam and then, you know, when no one will hire you because you quote unquote have no experience, yeah. <laughs> as I've crazy. told you for 20 minutes and 40 seconds, uh, uh, oh, I was like kind of laughing. No, they have something here where it's a bit, they don't necessarily, they appreciate the experience, but they, I don't know, maybe it was just sort of things lining me up to do what I'm doing now. I'm, I'm going to take it as that instead of the what I, I normally spent the first year growling at um, that every rejection. But rejection And I think that's the hard. kind of thing. It, yeah, yeah. When you apply to like 300 positions and yes, Aww. it was, um, yeah, it was sort of like, and they're saying, you have no experience. And, and I'd say, listen, I've done this. I did this job for seven years. How can I have no experience? But yeah. it's it's no, neither here nor there. I I'm I ended up where I needed to be, and absolutely, I'm really happy. So oh, yeah, so good. good. So obviously, you were not only starting a business, but you're also doing it in a completely different country where they speak a different language. What yeah. were the biggest challenges that you found in this kind of environment when you were setting up? I think it was work ethic. And I, I say this in, the, in a very, um, the Dutch actually love to work mm. and they do work and they have a different, they have a very creative and entrepreneurial spirit. So they are really into um, accepting people who are trying to do things differently. I mean, okay. to try to come here and make, um, make something. But the work ethic coming as a New Yorker and an American is completely different. So for me, um, 40 hours is part time. Um, yeah. So I, th- I think that that was really hard to try yeah. to start and be like, you know, this is how we work. And, you know, we just work, dig in until things get done. And mm-hmm. I initially had worked for a company here. And I think because I am a little bit more dig in and find what you uh, dig in and find a solution and make, you make mistakes, but I'm really adaptable that way. I think that was hard because culturally it kind of clashes. And so that was something I had to learn um, is that not everybody works at the same speed. Not everybody works at the same. They don't like that sometimes. And so that was a little hard because I took it personally. And um, it's not personal. It's just 
cultural. Different cultures. And, yeah. At least the people that I met. So I've had a hard time. Yeah, I've had a hard time with that too. As an, you know, like I, my first job was in New York City, you know, and you're, well, my first professional job. And so you learn a specific like work is life kind of thing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then other people are like, could you slow down? Could you take a breath? Could you, you know, where's your work life balance? And it is true. Like, when you take time and you have more work-life balance, you, the quality of your work, I think, for myself, is better. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I discovered that, too. I mean, I have learned um, I have learned from them as well. I mean, it wasn't just this. that Like, there is work-life balance, but that hasn't changed as far as how I work. So if I have a project I need to do, I will, you know, bust it to, like, get it done. And then um, – and then take some time. So I, I mean, I don't have a really kind of normal schedule in regards to consistent days off. I make my own schedule because I'm the boss. Yeah. But um, but I'll, I'll what I've learned to do is in order to get a project done, I'll work really hard to get it done. Sometimes till like one or two in the morning. Yeah. And then, then I'll take the next day off. You know, to 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 kind of relax and I don't feel guilty about it. I used yeah. to feel guilty about it, but I don't. Because yeah. I take the time off where I need to regenerate, and and that has really helped me. And you know, being more physical by riding my bike and walking around and stuff has really helped. And taking some time to even during the day say, "I'm going to go to a yoga class." And yeah, for take sure. Take a yoga class, and that helps quite a bit as well. So yeah. yeah, I've learned from them as well. So now you have this consulting business, your boutique wine and hospitality consultancy. And you also have your academy. So tell us about the two businesses, how they make money, you know, how you manage both, et cetera, et cetera. How do you do this? Well, I would say, um, so um, because I'm, I don't think, I haven't really been diagnosed with ADHD, but (laughs) so, (laughs) but um, I can handle lots of different things. I can multitask. So I think that you have to be flexible first off. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has really helped me. So I segment it. And so I know that these particular days I have the school so or the classes. So Van Bell Academy is a wine and spirits education trust um, certifi- certified um, school, wine school, mm-hmm. where we teach um, courses to consumers and trade. And um, on the days that I have classes or where I have a master class, I focus on trying to prep that and getting that together for the students and organize that. And then the other part, um, I don't necessarily do so much sales and marketing, but I do import wines. So it's actually used to help European wines, and now it's more working with American wineries and um, importing them and help. Um, initially, I'd work with the distributor and did a lot of the um, helping them gain some of the properties, but now I basically sold everything. It's, it's kind of like giving money away to somebody to do your work. It made no sense. Hmm. So um, I decided to start doing that myself, and I work with private clients, and through the relationships that I have with wineries, I, um, I sell directly. So like I just bought 40,000 euros worth of wine from some wineries and sold it directly to clients, and that was awesome because you know that gives me a little cachet so in the future if I want to buy from these very extremely limited mailing list places 
I have the I have I have an allocation now, which is very unheard of, which is great. Wow, that's so awesome. I work with Beautiful. that. Yeah, it's awesome. There's some of these wines are like ridiculous. It's like Andy Erickson. He makes Screaming Eagle, Dalavala, Mayakamas, uh, Favia, and then um, Cayuse with Christophe Baron and uh, Kathy Corson. Um, yeah, Gramercy Gramercy Cellars, Jasmine Hirsch. These are like really prestigious estates, yeah. really amazing winemakers too. So I bring them into the country. And so ah. Um, ah. I sell to private clients and then some restaurants, which we call Horeca here, mm-hmm. hotel, restaurant, catering is the acronym. Mm-hmm. Nice. But then um, for the, for the, for the Academy. So what I do for that is I kind of just, I kind of break it up and, and go with the flow and see what the day says about it. I've have um, assistant and so that was kind of my thing is you can't do everything by yourself. Mm. And also it's terribly lonely if you do. Yeah. Um, you need somebody to bounce ideas off of and somebody who has the knowledge of the ideas and yeah. somebody who of different uh, – I mean, even though I know sometimes a little bit more than other people in regards to the people that are in my um, my circle that work with me in regards to um, my, my intern or whatnot – they have things that they teach me. So they teach me uh, things about a fi- financial administration, which if you're not, that is not your strength, get somebody. Yeah. Do, not, <laughs> do not spend seven hours over a spreadsheet <laughs> and drive yourself crazy. Get somebody. Um, source out for accounting, which I do because, you know, I, my um, investor, he, uh, he's like, this is not your strength. I go, I know. <laughs> but, you know, I love it because I'm learning so much, you know, like I, I have an investor now. Um, I put forth a business plan and got an investor. Nice. And the thing that's great about this is that it's sort of a financial stability, but I actually didn't even take the full lot of what I could take at this particular point because there's a certain amount. But he also, because I, I don't need it at this point, later on down the line as the business is growing, I think I can source that out. So how did you find him? Was this part of your plan? No, it was not. Well, initially part of the plan was to initially get one, but it took like almost five years to get it sorted. But um, it had to do with, uh, it was just sort of something that fell into my lap by by relation. And then, and then it came out that way. But an, initially it was, I was just too busy working and then it sort of came into my path and that was great. But then... Um, so yeah, so um, so he is he was a really high executive for this international company, and um, he'd worked there for thirty years. And his experience has taught me so much about business in regards to. So he's mentoring me basically in some ways about yeah. how to do certain things, and I learned so much. And the way that he teaches is really gentle and very um, pragmatic. Mm-hmm. And so I don't feel talked down to. So it's really great. And so I've learned quite a bit from that. So that's another thing is find yourself a mentor, um, mm-hmm. somebody that you can respect and knows a lot more about a subject that you don't know. And then um, also just have some great people. Have fun. I mean, I, I love my job. I love the people that I teach. And what we try to create is sort of a community because the wine industry from years of being in it, it can be really exclusive. It yeah. can be 
um, kind of t- t- uh, tighten. It's very tight knit, mm-hmm. and we all take care of each other in some capacity. But it can also be sort of um, snobby, and you don't get invited to different tastings, or you don't belong, so you don't do this. And it can be a boys' club uh, as well. Yeah. Um, and I don't. Are there any industries that can't be a boys' club? <laughs> like besides fashion. <laughs> No, I've actually, this is a serious question. Like, is there Mm -hmm. any industry out there that someone, because we hear that all the time, you know, I started my own business because this can be a boys club and I wanted it to be, you know. Yeah. And then I guess like fashion can be so cliquey as well. So I think just having mixed inequality is just the best way in business every time. Diversity of thought. Yeah. Yeah. In any industry. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it is true. I mean, you know, I have and here's the here's the counterpart to it too i think because we've grown up women have grown up into this uh thing where it's, they see it as a boys club mm. the psychology of how we work through things is we either become um backstabbers for each other mm-hmm. and don't really kind of help and promote other women because i see that as well mm. or we kind of adapt to sexualizing things meaning that we have to sexualize in order to they think like we have to be like the sexy little kitten in order to um, rise to the top. Huh. Interesting perspective. Yeah. What I've seen how it's been successful is most women, when we form this sort of, not a coalition to keep the guys out, but this sort of camaraderie where we, we support each other and try to really propel each other in industry, mm. I think that's much more respectful amongst other women, but then also within men as well because it shows you – <clears throat> how to be, how you actually how to work well in this industry, any industry, to be quite honest. When I see women kind of um, kind of dismissing each other in a, a business environment, what I think that comes from, from what I've experienced is a scarcity mindset. Like they see, oh, Absolutely. there's only one spot for a woman at the top, so I can't elevate the voice of another because that creates more competition for me because it's already going to be hard enough, right? And it's the interesting thing about it is if we would all just change our, that thinking into an, a mindset of abundance and say, you know, the more we lift each other's voices, it's a rising tide. It lifts all ships and the more women are respected in business. Um, that would solve the problem <laughs> or start to at least. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, honestly, I mean, it's something obviously I'm still learning because you can't be bred into a certain environment and not, you know, not, not let it affect you in some particular things. And I mean, I, I had some, you know, places where I was learning along the way as well. But now mm-hmm. I think within the, when I was back in New York City, I had this uh, club that I started and it was called the Vino Vixens. And uh, basically, I would go to wine tastings and there would be, I would, I could look across the room and see the women, meaning there was hardly any. Mm-hmm. And I would go hunt them down, like, hi, my name is Julie Resendis. Nice to meet you. Can we taste together? And <laughs> it was like, and so we became, I became really good girlfriends with a lot of these, these uh, sommeliers in, the, in New York. And we really worked every single week to taste and to educate each other because it was a really small industry at the time. There was hardly any, any girls in the, any women in the industry. And, uh, we, as a result, we became really involved with each other's lives so much so that actually my friend Claire just, I was put, just put on LinkedIn that I was looking for an intern 
And this um, person that had worked with her, she really liked him. And she said, hey, listen, he's in Amsterdam. You should hire him. And so I met with him and hired him. And it was awesome. I love having an assistant. <laughs> and I'm not opposed to men. And uh, I, I mean, like, I have uh, women that work with me. I have men that work with me. I like right. a diverse and different age. It's yeah. not just women and men. It's different age. Yeah, definitely. Ages too. Yeah. Different experiences across generations and even new kind of tips of what's coming up and, and learned yeah. experience over the years. Yeah. A good mix is really important. We had a, a guest on that said something really poignant and it was when you deprive yourself of diversity of thought by just hiring one type of person or person with, you know, just one, like Sylvie said, just one type of experience, then you're really just robbing yourself and your business of potential creativity and ideas and all of that stuff. So, yeah, I think it's really interesting um, mm. just making sure you've got that diversity of thought. Julie, what's your number one tip for starting a business that you can share from your experience? I, I think the thing that you should do is something, I mean, a lot of people, what they do is they kind of, I mean, I talked to some friends and they're like, I would really like to do this and I would really like to do this. And they, they put these aspects of what they want to do. And then they tell me, and sometimes it can be multifaceted. So they can say, I like this sort of thing, or I like, you know, something else. Or then they say, oh, but I got to make money. I, and it's not that the making the money part is not important because believe me, <laughs> I've had to work with, I've worked, I've made, there's this one saying, I've made a lot of money and I've made little money and I have to be content with both. Yeah. I think you have to learn how to be content in the process of making very little money and then also how to make, you know, how to, how to manage the, the, the flow of the, of like the blessing that keeps coming. Mm -hmm. And it's not about that. You have to take that out of the equation. You have to be content, but you take the the financial out of the equation and you start to think about what actually makes you happy. Mm -hmm. And you think, what is the thing that actually, you know, in order to sound corny, sets my soul on fire? What gets me, what do I get energy from? And then you kind of think, you just do it. And you just start doing it every single day. And don't worry about the, the when I say don't worry about the numbers, because initially the first classes I had, I had like three or four students. And I used to think that, oh gosh, I can't start the class if I only have, if I don't have 10 or 20. Mm. But the beauty in that was that I got to really connect with those people and also learn how to make mistakes in that too. And I had some grace in that, you know, I figured out what worked, what didn't work and how to really engage with them. And I think that the extra attention that I paid to them really helped them. And then as I grew in numbers, I was able to take what I'd learned from that um, and grow further. And I see people all the time, they don't want to start things because they're worried about they're thinking all the way to the end, but you have to think at the beginning at, that as every per- and don't think of people as a commodity too. Mm-hmm. I I I, uh, I I I hate that to be quite honest. Um, yeah, and I think of people as sort of if they're coming into your life, your life. Um, there's a reason that they're there yeah. for you and for them, yeah. and yeah. and it's that particular moment, and you really can use this moment to kind of figure out how to be present. And that's a really big thing for me. And I've really enjoyed it. I mean, 
my students really are the best. They really are. And try to um, trying to create this community of inclusiveness has been, you know, some people don't, they want to like have the numbers and pump it out, but people have left other schools and come to mine because they feel connected not only to the wine industry, but to other people and to, they feel sort of understood and heard, which is my whole goal. And yeah. that's my hint is don't look at the, what you start out, look at, and don't think about the, the end result, figure out what you can learn in this particular moment from your business because you will make mistakes but don't stop also don't you know even when you're about to give up just try one more day and then yeah <laughs> try another day you know yeah yeah that's great advice what's yeah. next for Van Bell? yeah tell us what are you doing next a wine so now what we're doing club? is <laughs> can I subscribe <laughs> the wine club the bit of, it would be a bit of a hard postage for Sydney but I could hook you up with some people down there, there for go. sure um yeah, posters would be more than the wine. Aww. So the Vidi Club is actually, um, so we're trying to create this sort of thing. And this is sort of outside of COVID was, you know, inside of COVID, the, sort of what happened was, you know, you've got no school because you can't really teach classes face-to-face. We can now, but during the time when it first hit in March, it was sort of like, I'm not going to swear, but I'm saying a different kind of show, if you know what I mean. And uh, <laughs> We have and, people swear uh, on this podcast all the time. <laughs> it was a shit show. <laughs> there you go. Let it out. It was, a total, it was a total shit show. Um, it was basically, you know, I'm in... I'm in Burgundy driving home because I was afraid of them closing the borders because they had initially thought that Macron's wife had... Um, had corona and so I was driving like a bat out of hell straight from um, bone and to get home and I had had a class this was like Thursday I had a class scheduled for Monday and I'm just calling them via the you know prompters that you have on the car saying hey listen guys um, we are going to go to zoom we're going to go straight to zoom on Monday for our class until we figure out what's going on so we can <laughs> we, I had students coming to my house pouring jars of wine of the samples that we had because this is what you had to do because I, I could either postpone it and you know and not do it or we could do it via zoom and so we had to do it zoom and it was great because we kept connected you know in the time that was really kind of frightening to figure out how things were yeah, and they felt connected. And then, so then I started to basically create these subscriptions where people could sign up and I would curate six bottles of wine and be on my bike delivering the <laughs> bottles, sometimes like, like 15 kilometers away. So sometimes I'd had a really good workout and yeah. um, just doing what I needed to do to, to make, to make some money, to keep going, to do something. And uh, as a result, it started to grow. People started to like it. And um, it's so we're focusing on that. But the main focus is the school, but then growing the Vidi Club and to create, to show um, people outside of the normal commercial wines. It's not that I don't want to show them, but I also want to show different types of agriculture and different types of winemaking and introduce different um, people that people normally and different grapes different regions that people normally wouldn't go to and things that are not readily accessible in wine shops. So we put that 
forth. And it's been great. I Sometimes people like the wine. Sometimes people are like, oh, that wasn't my favorite. Mm. And so we're trying to create sort of like a concierge for wine. And eventually it can grow into being a lot more personalized per each person. But this is initially trying to showcase all the different ones. So this month we're doing one on um, the Femme Fatale. It's um, all the female winemakers. And um, yeah, I'm really excited about it. There's a... To be correct, surprisingly, Italy has a huge amount of female winemakers. Oh. Uh, they have a ton of women winemakers and Spain as well, but um, France is growing, but Italy more so, to be quite honest, than um, in Europe. And so that's been really fun. And it's just a little bit more sensitivity. I, I can smell, I can taste a lot more sensitivity and expressiveness. And so that's what we're focusing on and basically trying to create a community of people who love wine and can connect with each other all over the world and take my students if they want to go. They, I mean, they come here, they study, and sometimes there's a large expat market. So they kind of go here and there and they'll text me and say, hey, listen, Jules, where I want to get involved in the wine industry or change careers, can you connect me? And I'm like, yeah, so... I connect them with people, and that makes me excited to see them really succeed. And then I have another friend someplace else in the world I can, when I can travel, go visit. <laughs> so, yeah, it's been great. Oh, beautiful. Really great. It's great to hear how far you've come and how much more you've got going on in the future in supporting women in business as well. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. My pleasure, ladies. Oh, we've loved and, it so uh, much. If people want to find you, where do, where do they reach you? They can um, reach me at Julie, J-U-L-E-E, at V-A-N-B-E-L-L-E.org or at my website, which is vanbellacademy.com. It's V-A-N-B-E-L-L-E, Academy. And the name of the company is um, an homage to my grandmother. So the name of the vineyard. So the the vineyard, the road that she had the vineyard on was called Van Bell Road. Aww. So it's um, sort of a way of, even though she had to sell the winery, that there is somebody still in the family who is in the wine industry, and it's to honor her for all her efforts that she made. Oh, to, wow. That's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. I love that it's come full circle. Yeah. I love it. So yeah. good. All right. Well, next time I'm in Amsterdam, I'm looking you up and I need some wine classes. You should. I definitely we'll have a glass am. of wine. Oh, yeah. Uh, or a couple, maybe. <laughs> a couple glasses. Or a, of bottle. Wine. <laughs> or a bottle. We'll <laughs> see the night. I've got a plan. It's like a wine shop in my in, in the office. So uh, I cannot wait. Cannot wait. Okay. Thank you so much. Take care, Julie. We'll Thank talk you. soon. Keep in touch. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity as well. Take care. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. This podcast was brought to you by Invoice2Go. We're an invoicing and billing app that helps business owners work and get paid from anywhere, at any location around the globe. We're helping close the gender-based pay gap. Because the current U.S. pay gap sits at around 19%, listeners of the Female Founders Network podcast get exactly 19% off of any subscription. Just enter the code EMPOWERWOMEN at checkout.